it's really interesting. I don't know if you guys ever noticed this, <clears throat> but we live in an age that is obsessed with deconstruction or deconstructing things. And I don't mean deconstruction like taking apart houses or, or breaking things. I mean deconstruction in, in terms of um, taking apart the way we used to do things in life. We're constantly deconstructing uh, our social constructs, our political methods. If you haven't noticed, we've, um, politically, we've, we've become, uh, we, we take bigger leaps and bigger jumps one way or the other every year than, than has ever been imaginable. Um, we're deconstructing gender. We're deconstructing sexuality. We're deconstructing education, deconstructing our economics, uh, our commerce, our technology, our science. We're at this, this point in human history where we're just rapidly changing. And it's almost hard to keep up. I mean, I don't know if you guys realize this, but basically 10 years ago, none of us had these. <laughs> and this has radically transformed our world. This, is, this has brought up um, things that we never even thought we would have to deal with, walking around with a supercomputer in your pocket and access to all of the things happening in the world was something that was really unimaginable, really, uh, not, not too long ago. Social media, uh, I mean, our, our world is just changing rapidly, and part of what is changing our world rapidly not only is, is technology and information, but it's this sense, this kind of uneasiness, I think, of the way things were and a desire to try to, to change everything. So everything is under question right now. Um, this is really obvious if you ever watch TED Talks. Anybody ever watch TED Talks? Uh, okay, so TED Talks um, are living proof that humans can still sit and listen to a 30-minute sermon, by the way, um, as everybody does. Anyways, uh, so TED Talks, though, here's what's so interesting about them. Somebody gets up there, and they cite a bunch of statistics. And you go, wow, that's really interesting. And their point always has something to do with deconstructing the way you used to think about something. You know, they start, you know, this is how we used to think about things, and now look at these statistics, and all of a sudden it changes your whole paradigm, and that's what makes them so interesting, is it's deconstructing the way that you used to think. This is the way the world really works right now, and because of that, it's just changing so fast. Now, why is this? Now, if you look back at most of history, culture, religion, philosophy, they made long, slow change. Long, slow change. Most of history would stay the same. You could be a great-great-great-grandson and have lived almost the exact same life as your great-great-great-grandfather. Life was very steady, very steady. Now, there has always been change in culture. There's always been, um, you know, kind of pendulum swings throughout all of history, but it's always been much slower. And now, if you just look back at our last century, we're all over the board. Culture's changing so fast because we're deconstructing Constantly. So about 50 years ago, let me try to explain a little bit why I think this is, okay? So about 50 to 200 years ago, something came in called modernity, the modern age, uh, with industrial revolution and with the printing press and with this, this um, access to all of this information, um, people started to go, hey, you know, maybe there's another answer to the world's problems other than religion, so they sort of invented a new religion, which is called modernity, and this new religion, science is the savior, Science and intellectualism and knowledge and academia is going to free us and, and break our chains from this dogma that religious has kept, religion has kept us in for thousands of years, right? So, so, so um, the sciences and intellectualism uh, kind of became our redeemer. The problem is, is that my generation came along and we realized, hey, that's not working, <laughs> right? Like, that's not working. I mean, this, no matter how much intelligence we get in the world, stuff still seems to be broken. Have you noticed that? No matter how much scientific discovery we make, stuff's still broken. 
No matter how much access we have to the internet, I mean, this idea of global internet now, you know, it's like, is that going to fix the world? No. It's, it's not. So clearly, um, just learning more isn't fixing everything. So then uh, that ushered in a new age called post-modernity. And this is kind of my generation and millennials and younger, where they said, well, it must not be more knowledge. It must just be not disagreeing on anything. So, so maybe the answer to the world's problems is just being more tolerant of one another. And not tolerant in the sense of, of just letting someone believe what they want to believe, but tolerant in the sense where let's just break down all of these ideas that anyone has the market cornered on the truth. Let's just say, hey, truth is relative. You believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. Your belief is equally valid to my belief. We can all hold hands in kumbaya and get along. That'll fix the world, right? Is it fixing the world? Well, no, of course it's not fixing the world. So what it's done in this massive amount of information and this massive access to, I mean, you can just grab your phone at any time and Google anything you want. It's kind of cheapened um, knowledge. I think all of that combined has put us in this place where now we're kind of questioning everything. We're questioning everything. We're questioning our politics. We're questioning our, 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 as I said, our identity, our gender, our sexuality. All of these things are now called into question. And, And none of us want to trust the generation before all of us are thinking, no, the generation before doesn't know. There, there's something new we need to, to, to deconstruct and get to, okay? Um, so that has trickled into the church. Have you noticed? Okay, there's a massive amount in America, not globally. The church globally is blowing up. Uh, but in the West, in America, there is sort of a mass migration uh, away from evangelical Christianity among young people. And, and what they're calling it is deconstructionism. Have you heard of this? Deconstructionism. It's a very uh, popular term. If you Google it, you'll find all kinds of articles uh, about this deconstructionism. Um, and, and what it basically is saying is, let's think about the word deconstructionism. It's saying that this paradigm in which we must live in in the West was constructed for us by our parents and our parents' parents, and we need to take it apart and rethink it. And that's kind of the popular, trendy, cool thing to do in the younger world right now among Christians is, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out everything that my parents told me, just kind of rethink it all and, and try to rebuild it. And this has been made popular by some, some big-name Christian um, authors and pastors that you probably have heard of. Um, Rob Bell, years back, was kind of one of the first to come out with this idea. He, he, he wrote a book called Erasing Hell and started questioning some of the kind of the hardline ideals that we have uh, Christianity. And um, what do you know? Before you know it, he just, he really kind of went off the deep end. Um, Michael and Lisa Gunger, if you guys know them, they're musicians, really popular musicians and kind of mainstream Christian um, music. They recently have come out as deconstructed. Michael Gunger, all the way to the point of being an atheist, Lisa somewhere floating around in postmodern thinking somewhere, um, and we'll quote her in a minute. Uh, the, most, the one that probably would hit the closest to home is Josh Harris. Okay, Josh Harris wrote a book um, that you shouldn't read called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Okay? It was really popular. Parents saw the book, and they thought, great, I can keep my kids from having sex with each other. Perfect. Um, so, they, so they read the book, and i um, not saying it's an evil book. I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's totally wrong, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. So Josh Harris wrote that book, got really popular, was kind of part of the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement. About two years ago, he came out and basically repented of his book, um, which I, I don't think was a bad thing. But then it kind of started this chain reaction where he started repenting of everything. He started repenting of the Bible. He started repenting for God on behalf of the LGBTQ community and saying, I'm sorry for ever, you know, judging you guys or whatever. And, and now he's basically deconstructed his entire faith, walked away from his faith, left his wife, and he's floating out somewhere in the, in the universe. Um, so pray for Josh Harris. Pray for him. Okay. Um, so this is kind of what's happening. Now, it's easy to not notice this stuff. 
if you just kind of stay in your evangelical streams. But the reality is, is there is a post-Christendom happening in our country where young people are in droves questioning and deconstructing their faith. There's a couple reasons for this. One is this radical individualism. Radical individualism. This idea that I exist singularly. My truest identity is not what I'm part of, it's me figuring out who I truly am, singularly. Okay? Radical individualism. Uh, yourself is the most real thing about you. Okay? Uh, and then liberal scholarship doesn't help. Okay? You have um, you know, people that are, are trying to divorce the uh, historical Jesus from the Jesus that we preach in the Bible. Um, that just simply isn't true. So I want to read a quote really quick from Lisa Gunger, who's um, one of these deconstructed Christians. Uh, and I just want, I want to read it, and it's going to be something that I'm going to bring up throughout um, our time together here. So here's what she says. She's trying to explain deconstructionism, okay? She says, let's say our faith was like a sweater, okay? So picture that in your head. Let's say our faith was like a sweater. Yarn, our ideology. Weave, our tradition. This is how you wear it. Don't change it, even if the sweater doesn't keep you warm anymore, even if it's too tight or the threads cut off oxygen at your neck. This is the way. Doubts and questions mean disrespect, and those are the seeds of evil, so just don't. But over the years, a thread comes loose, and you try to just tuck it in alongside the others. Uh, you can cover the fraying up, you can pull the thread and think, oh, I don't need this one because it's harmful to me. It's itchy, it gets caught on corners, it comes out easily, and the sweater stays together. Then you pull another and another, and soon you find all the yarn is gone. You've deconstructed the entire thing. You are left naked. People gawk and run away, and you feel two opposing things, the freedom of glorious nakedness and the fear of the same. Okay, so this is Lisa Gunger's um, picture of the beauty, the, admir the admirable thing of deconstruction. Okay? I want you to note really quick her reasoning. Her reasoning is that the sweater was not custom fit for her truest self. The sweater was given to me. The sweater never really fit me, okay? Um, her reasoning is that her real naked self is simply being hindered by the sweater, okay? This is Eastern religion that is crept into our thinking. This idea that my truest self is on the inside. And if I can just get rid of all of these hindering things like religion and truth claims and dogma, and if I, and I can let my true self out, then I'll be naked and free. And everyone will just be happy. So really the problem with the world is these oppressive worldviews. And what we really need to do is just figure out who we truly are on the inside and let us out because we're really good people on the inside. Okay, this is, this is the idea. It's nothing, nothing new. Now, here's our question for this morning, okay? Here's our question. How should we as the church think slash react about this era of deconstructionism? Okay, now, now many of you have kids, that grew up in the church. And many of you maybe have kids that are saying, hey, mom, dad, I'm deconstructed. Okay, what do you say to them? How do you approach that? Uh, many of you in here are young. Many of you here are wrestling with those same questions. Does the sweater of Christianity fit me? Should I pull the threads? Is it better to not wear the sweater? These kinds of questions. We need to think about this. So here's my objective for this morning, okay? I'm just gonna try to communicate three things. Um, and the text, I think, will guide us through this. Number one, I wanna understand deconstructionism. I want to understand it, I want to deconstruct it, <laughs> okay, and then I want to show how the gospel is the true answer. So that's my agenda. 
In our text, um, we're going to see the gospel come into two different people groups, and each of those people groups have very different responses to the gospel. One of them sees the gospel as a threat to their truest self. And so what do they do? They deconstruct God's word. The other group sees the gospel as good news, and they let God's word deconstruct them. Do you see the difference? So this is our outline. It's really simple. Just two things. Deconstructing God's word, verses 1 through 9, and letting God's word deconstruct you, verses 10 through 15. Okay? So deconstructing God's word, 1 through 9, letting God's word deconstruct you. Let me get you into the narrative here. Uh, I was gone last week. Um, John did a great job, heard a lot of good things. He covered Acts 15. Um, and, and as you're probably wondering, why are we skipping chapter 16? Uh, it's because we taught chapter 16 when we launched the church um, a whole whopping six months ago. So if you want, uh, I'd encourage you to go back um, on the website, listen to the first teaching of Acts 16. The reason we launched the church with that teaching was because it's about the planting of Philippi. So it was a, it was a fitting thing. Um, so go back, listen to that, but we're going to skip ahead to chapter 17 and cover this first half. Now, Paul is on his second missionary journey, okay? His second missionary journey, he's picked up a new missions team. Uh, him and Barnabas had sort of a disagreement over John Mark. They split their own ways. Paul picks up a new group of guys. He picks up Silas. He picks up Timothy. And he picks up Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts. And in chapter 16, they set out, instead of going across the Mediterranean, this time they go up north into Turkey, what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, they're trying to go into Asia Minor, and God won't let them go into Asia Minor. So they're skirting the top, and they're waiting for direction. And at the top of Asia Minor, Paul has this vision, the Macedonian vision, uh, of a man who's calling out for him to come and preach the gospel. So Paul does. He, him and his team, they head south into Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and they come into a town called Philippi, and they plant a church there. And there's some really amazing conversion stories that you guys can read about in Acts chapter 16 and go back and listen to the teaching. It's a phenomenal uh, chapter and, and very dear to, to the DNA of our church. So as they're in Philippi, um, at, like always happens, they get beat up and thrown in prison. Okay. Uh, and then they get out. God lets them out. Um, and after planting this church in Philippi, after dealing with some different things, Paul heads south with his team into the next Macedonian city, which is Thessalonica. And that's where we're going to pick it up in chapter 17. So verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, if you want to read about Thessalonica, go. There's two letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church in the New Testament. They're called First and Second Thessalonians. Okay, so you can read about that if you like. So Paul comes into Thessalonica. He goes into the synagogue of the Jews, verse 2, and Paul went in. Thanks for adding that, Luke. Uh, Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from what? From the Scriptures. Why does he do that? He does that because he understands that these guys have a presuppositional belief in the authority of God's word. So what Paul's doing when he goes into these cities is um, he, he doesn't go directly for the high fruit, which would be the Gentiles that don't even believe in the Bible. He goes to the Jews who already believe the authority of the scripture. It's just kind of smart. Um, next week, we'll look at Acts, uh, the second half of Acts 17 where Paul engages um, the Gentiles that don't believe in the scripture, and we'll see how he does that. But for, for this part, Paul goes into the synagogue to those that already presuppose the truth of the scripture, and he reasons with them from the scriptures. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, that's Jesus, the Messiah, to suffer 
and to rise from the dead. That's always Paul's gospel message. Christ had to die and he had to rise. Those two things are absolutely imperative for the gospel to work. In saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. In other words, this Jesus who I'm speaking of is the fulfillment of everything that your Old Testament scripture that you study every Saturday in synagogue has been pointing towards since the beginning of time. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's redemptive history, all of God's redemptive plan. So Paul steps into the synagogue, he steps up and he says, hey, everything you've been waiting for is here. It's here in Christ Jesus, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. And in other words, he's saying, your scriptures don't work unless Jesus is the fulfillment of them. Okay, and we'll come back to that. Verse four, some of them were persuaded. So some of them go, great, they love it. And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, And not a few of the leading women, meaning a lot of the leading women, joined as well. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So I want you to notice the paradigm of deconstructionism in this text. Because the Jews here that are coming against the gospel, coming against the apostles, they are deconstructed. They are deconstructed. Okay, notice why they're attacking them. They're attacking them not because the gospel isn't true. They're attacking them because of their feelings. They feel jealous. Do you notice that? It's very clear that Luke is trying to show us here that these guys were not interested in what the authority of the truth of their scripture said. They were only interested in whether or not the gospel was going to unhinge what they wanted in their life. It was feelings-driven, much like what I think the deconstruction movement is today. It's not a question of what is true, what makes the most sense, what is valid. It is what do I feel, and feeling is driving this. Secondly, notice that they have aggression, not conversation. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. This is an overreaction, wouldn't you say? (laughs) Some guys come in and say, hey, the Christ is here, his name's Jesus. The next thing they know, they're basically setting the city on fire, bringing a mob, banging on the door of Jason, trying to rip him out and cause a big, giant problem. Why is this reaction so severe? They feel threatened. They feel threatened. They feel threatened because the gospel is telling them that there is a new sovereign in their life. And that means that they have to submit to this new sovereign. And this is, this is often what happens. The gospel divides and it brings out something in people. I think it's kind of ironic that our new tolerant society is completely intolerant of Christianity. <laughs> Isn't it? Interesting. It doesn't, it's not rational to say that, hey, we should all be able to believe whatever we want to believe and it's all equally valid except you guys. Why? Because we're saying that their worldview is wrong. 
And because we're saying their worldview is wrong, therefore our worldview is disvalidated. Okay, it's the same thing that's happening here. The apostles are coming and they're pushing on the true God and the true uh, king of these guys, which is not Christ. And in verse seven, they're inconsistent with their own supposed beliefs. You can see in verse seven, Jason has received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Since when do the Jews care about Caesar's sovereignty? Oh, you guys are gonna, you're gonna come steal the throne from Caesar. They don't even like Caesar. They hate the Romans. The Romans are their oppressive dictator. Okay, so clearly there's an inconsistency here in these guys' action. What, what, what is the, the, the place that these guys are coming from? They're deconstructed. Well, deconstructed from what? I mean, they're still meeting in the Sabbath. They're still in the synagogue. They're still offering sacrifices. They don't look deconstructed. They're still doing all the things that Jewish people were supposed to do, right? Well, they hadn't deconstructed their religious behavior. Why would you do that? Religious behavior is great. It makes you feel good about yourself. You go home feeling like you did a good thing. I mean, religious behavior obviously does not have the ability to truly change us on the inside. Christ had some pretty harsh things to say about the Pharisees. They've not deconstructed their reading of Scripture. They read the Scripture every weekend in the synagogues. What they had deconstructed was their submission to the authority of Scripture. And, and, and catch this, okay? Because when you see people deconstructing from Christianity, they still like Christianity. They just like certain parts of it. It's not the church part they don't like necessarily. It's not the having a Bible to read that they don't like necessarily. It's not the idea of community that they don't. That's why we have universalist church, churches. Let's all get together and have coffee. That sounds like a great idea. What they're deconstructing is the authority of God through his word. That's what's being deconstructed. And for that reason, when the gospel is brought to them, they don't go to the scriptures and go, well, do, does this line up with God's word? They instantly react with jealousy and try to see these guys hung out to dry. They deconstructed their submission to the authority of God's word. Who has the authority to deconstruct God's word? Only God. Jesus did some deconstructing, didn't he? He had lots of deconstructing to do, actually, because he came into a completely wrong view of who the Messiah was and what he was going to do. I mean, he spent three years deconstructing the disciples. Did you know that? Why is Jesus allowed to deconstruct? Because he's God. <laughs> and because he is the word of God. He is the truth of God. He is the, 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 the most literal expression of God. He is God himself. So Jesus does some deconstructing, right? We always need to be deconstructing. In fact, you know when Martin Luther, uh, when Martin Luther brought the Reformation, you know that was some deconstruction? But what was, what was driving the deconstruction? Was it, I don't like this sweater, it's scratchy? Or was it, God's word says, it is grace alone by faith alone. Scripture alone, to God be the glory, alone. And he looked at the Catholic Church and he looked at the oppression that they had brought from a false gospel and he came and he reoriented the Christians back to the reality of what God had actually said. That's the kind of deconstruction that we need. And it's not deconstruction based on how I feel, it's deconstruction based on what is true from God's word. Amen? What about Martin Luther King Jr.? He was deconstructing. What was he deconstructing based off of? God's word. See, people, people have a hard time, you know, the fact that there were Christians, um, and rightly so, the fact that there were Christians that owned slaves. Those Christians needed reform. Do you know what they needed to be reformed to? The true gospel. <laughs> God's word. 
when God's word is actually preached, we don't have slaves, okay? That's the reality. That's what reform truly was, okay? Now, let me just spend two minutes, okay, maybe five minutes, five minutes deconstructing deconstructionism, and then we'll move on, okay? I want to I give you three flaws with this idea of deconstructionism. Three flaws. You might jot them down. Number one, deconstructionism assumes you can deconstruct your presuppositions. Deconstructionism assumes that you can deconstruct your presuppositions. This, this is a major flaw in this kind of thinking. Because what they're saying is, is that I can, if I choose to, I can divorce myself from any presupposed thinking. Can you actually do that? I don't think you can. I mean, thinking doesn't happen in a vacuum. There is no ideological neutrality. There is no self-think. Here's what happens. You go off to secular university, and it's not that all of a sudden you have this blank slate, you've been deconstructed, and now you can build on this nice, flat, clean foundation. You've just been reconstructed by a secular philosopher, secular um, uh, teacher. That's what happens. That's what happened to Josh Harris. He went to school, at a liberal school, a secular school, and they reconstructed him with a different paradigm, a different dogma. Okay, that's the reality. I can't remove what I already think to be true. Here's a really funny thing to think about. The, 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 um, the accusation that God is unloving by what he does in the Bible is based off of God's revelation of what is loving. Did you follow that? The world's accusation that God is unloving is based on the revelation that God gave them of what love is. How do we even know what love is in the first place in the West? Because of the Bible. The Bible has given us that. So we can't divorce ourselves from our presuppositions, what we already believe to be true. That's just the way that it is. What this means is that embracing the fact that a faith is unavoidable changes everything. In other words, what that means is that nobody is free of believing in something. This is the lie. I don't believe in anything. Yes, you do. Choosing not to believe in something is a belief. Okay? Choosing to be uh, neutral is a faith. You're choosing to believe that you have the ability to do that. Everything is a faith. Everything is a belief. You can't avoid belief. Belief is there, whether you like it or not. Either you're choosing to believe the word, or you're choosing to believe a liberal scholar, or you're choosing to believe uh, YouTube, or you're choosing to believe something, but you can't escape belief. Secondly, deconstructionism assumes that you can turn off your biases. In other words, deconstructionism thinks that you cannot be uh, informed by what you really want to be true. And this is the reality. Most people believe what they want, <laughs> okay? They believe what they want. People that like religion, they gravitate towards religious systems. People that kind of just feel like sort of choked out by religious systems, they, they don't go to those. You can't leave behind what you truly want. And our culture is defining what truth is now based off of what they feel and want to be true. Listen to this quote. Andy Rooney, you guys are familiar with him. Um, he said this, I'd be more willing to accept religion, listen, even if I didn't believe it, if I thought it made people nicer to each other. But I don't think it does. Now, that's really cute, okay? But this is so telling of the way that we think in this world right now. It doesn't really matter if it's true. If I like it, I'll believe it. I think I want to believe I'm a blender. That just sounds like fun. You know, then maybe people will feed me, you know, like put food in me. Okay, whatever. That's silly. But th this is the reality. It's because I like something, therefore it's true. Is that reality? No, that's not reality. 
He's not concerned with whether religion is right. He's concerned with whether or not he likes it. And he's even willing to believe it if it's not true just because he might like it. The gospel is so jarring that it instantly reveals what you really want. Remember the, the rich young ruler? He comes to Christ and he says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Really good guy, really moral guy. Jesus says, go sell everything you have. What does that do? It totally jars this guy. And he goes away sorrowful. Why? It revealed his true bias. It revealed what he really wanted. He wasn't neutral. None of us are neutral. We want to believe what we want to believe. This is, this is why we need something that is, that is objective from the outside to inform what is truly true, rather than just what I feel and rather than just what I want. Because what I want doesn't mean it's true. I want to eat cheeseburgers all day. Does that mean that I get to or that I should? Does that mean that that's what my body was designed to? Well, if I believe it, then it is. No. <laughs> what world is that? No one lives in that world. That's not real life. That's postmodernism. That's, you just, yeah, just stick your head in the toilet. I don't know. Anyways. Thirdly, deconstructionism assumes the existence of relativism. Now, let me define relativism. Relativism is the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality uh, exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context and are not absolute. In other words, morality, um, truth, all of these things, they, they're only true depending on where you are and depending on what has informed them. So what's true for me in America is different than what's true for someone in Africa or what's true for someone in, in China or whatever. Okay, that's relativism. So in other words, what's true for you can be true for you, and what's true for me can be true for me, as long as your truth doesn't tell me that my truth is, you know, you, you get it. I mean, it, it's, it's, everyone can be true at the same time. Everyone can be true at the same time. One of my favorite, <laughs> Robbie Zacharias, one of my favorite apologists, um, and that doesn't mean he goes around telling people sorry. Uh, he fights for the, for the truth of the gospel. Anyways, he, he gave this story about he was on this secular campus, and he was in the golf cart driving around, and they're showing him the campus. It was like the, one of the most liberal schools out there. I don't know which one. Pick one. Um, and he, uh, he comes up to the crown jewel of the campus, and the, and the guy giving him the tour says, this is, this is really the, the place that just expresses our worldview and the way that we think about the world. He's like, there's this house, and, and if you go into the house, there's staircases that lead to nowhere, and there's elevators that don't go, and there's doors that open to walls, and everything is just completely random chance. And it's to illustrate the fact that, that life really isn't have absolute truths. Everything is just sort of random chance. I can just picture the guy smiling. Isn't that impressive, Robbie? And Robbie Zacharias, we all wish he was, we were as smart as this guy. He goes, hmm, did you do that with the foundation? <laughs> <laughs> of course you didn't. Of course, you pulled out a level. You made sure it was straight. You made sure you got down into bedrock. You made sure everything was just right according to the truth of reality in order to stack your little cute little house that means nothing um, on top of it. So we can go around all we want saying that truth is relative, you just believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe, until it comes down to something that really matters, like how much my paycheck should be, or how much change I should get when I go to the store, or how many patties you should put when I order a double cheeseburger, okay? I mean, this is just an example off the top of my head. You know, I want two patties, and they give me four. Hey, you know, that's great. If they give me one, truth isn't relative there, right? I order two, I want two. That's reality, okay? Um, so, so this is this, just a false idea. This idea of deconstruction is a false idea. Now, let me turn a corner here. Again, the urge to deconstruct is actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing. But the question has to be, who has the authority and the understanding, the knowledge, to do that deconstructing? Is it you? 
Do you have all wisdom in the universe? Do you know all things? That's why I laugh. I always say I don't believe in atheists. I don't, I don't believe in them. You, you can't be in it. You, you, you don't have all knowledge in the, what, the universe to say without absolute no doubt that there is no God. I mean, have you explored the whole universe? You have to believe. Atheism is a belief. Believe that there's no God. Okay? So deconstructionism is not bad, but who gets to deconstruct? And what basis do we deconstruct off of? What do we decide what to get rid of and what to keep? If we don't have some kind of an objective truth, I'm just going to get rid of whatever I don't like and keep whatever I do. So look at the second half of our text, Acts chapter 17. Now let's talk about God's word deconstructing you. We've talked about deconstructing God's word. Let's talk about God's word deconstructing you. Verse 10. Brothers, or the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. And when they arrived, they went into Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews, okay, we're in a different place. We're not in Thessalonica anymore. Now we're in Berea. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And that's not because they were more wealthy. It's not because they were more astute or, 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 or some kind of highfalutin society. He's saying they're more noble in their conduct, in the way that they receive the gospel. Well, what makes them so much more noble? Uh, because they received the word with all eagerness, examining what? Their feelings? What did they examine? Oh, good, somebody's listening. Okay. They're examining the scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. Not just once, every time that the gospel is being, uh, it's being laid out, they're going to God's word to decide whether or not this thing lines up. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of highest standing, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating, stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible. They departed. Now I want you to see, and I think Luke wants you to see, the contrast here between the Bereans and the Thessalonican Jews. The, 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 there's a difference. First of all, in how they felt about the gospel. The Thessalonians felt, they felt threatened by the gospel. Okay, so their feelings, they felt threatened. The Bereans, they were eager they were eager. Why were they eager? I think they were eager because they knew their Bibles. Because as the gospel is being presented, they're going, oh, wow, that is the fulfillment of everything we've been studying our entire lives. Jesus is the Christ. It does make sense. And by the way, if you don't think the gospel is good news, you don't know it. If the gospel comes to you and you think, well, that sounds like bad news, it's because you either don't understand how bad you are, how broken this world is, and how good news the gospel really is. But we'll get to that. Notice the, the contrast of how they determine the validity of Scripture. And Thessalonica, they determine it based on their own understanding. Okay? They just immediately get all frustrated and go after these guys. In Berea, they examine the Scriptures daily to see if it was so. Both had some deconstructing that needed to be done. Okay? Both had some deconstructing. In Berea, I, I guarantee that these guys were having to rethink some things. As the gospel's being um, laid forth, they're rethinking their Christology, that's their understanding of Christ, um, the kingdom, atonement, resurrection, what to do with Gentiles, all these things would be needed to be deconstructed. But the difference is, is that they did that deconstructing based on God's authoritative word, whereas the Thessalonians didn't even open it. They weren't even concerned about it. So here's my thesis, okay? Here's my thesis. True freedom 
only comes in being deconstructed by the gospel. So all of, my, all of the people my age right now and, and, and older that are, that are choosing to deconstruct themselves, I believe there's really no true hope and freedom in that. I believe the only real hope and freedom is, freedom is when we let God's word, we let the gospel, the good news of Jesus and what he's done um, and what he's doing deconstruct us. Now, if the gospel, listen, if the gospel is true freedom, why is everyone feeling like it's a restrictive sweater? If it's such good news, why are there so many young people going, this thing is scratchy, taking this off, throwing it in the garbage, right? I mean, why, why is that, right? So let's, let's think about that for a minute. Um, I want to bring Josh Harris up again. I'm not trying to pick on him, but, but this is interesting to me. When Josh Harris started repenting, as he says, repenting, he started repenting for his book. And his book was um, not a terrible book, but here's what happened with his book. His book basically said this. If you want a fulfilled life, if you want a good marriage, if you want a good sex life, then just don't date court. Follow these rules, and you will get a happy marriage. Great. Parents loved that. They bought it in droves for their kids. You need to read this, sweetie. These are the rules. Now we're going to start courting instead of dating. Okay. Um, now that's I'm not making fun of anyone for that. That's this seems like as a parent that seems like a great idea. Here was the problem though. All of these kids grew up. Now they're all 30. Now they're all 40. And a lot of them have terrible marriages. A lot of them got married and they did everything the book said, and stuff didn't go well. All the things that the book said to do, they did, and now they're, they're having struggles in their marriage. They're having struggles in their relationship, and they're going to Josh Harris, and they're blowing up his social media page. You told me if I did this, I'd have a good marriage. And Josh Harris goes, oh, everything I've preached must be wrong. Now, is the gospel the problem? Or is I Kiss Dating Goodbye a false gospel? Now, if, if you don't just want to keep it in the place of some advice for dating, great. But once you make that your God, see what happened was a whole, a whole generation of people grew up thinking that they would be happy and fulfilled if they just followed the rules. You know what that's called? Legalism. God will give me the marriage I want if I just follow the rules. A plus B equals C. If I do this, God owes me. That is not the gospel. So what, the problem with a false gospel, it gives you a false God. The problem with a false God, they can't satisfy you. They can't redeem you. They're not what you really need. So all of these people grew up disillusioned, unfortunately, with the gospel, but it wasn't the real gospel they were disillusioned with. It was a false one. And now they're all walking away from their faith, including Josh Harris. Listen to this quote. I thought this was so insightful. One blogger online, he said this, Harris's, Joshua Harris's attempt at humility was actually a self-focused revelation of his own pride. Listen, an inflated view of his own influence caused him to take responsibility for even failed relationships, resulting from a misapplication of his book. Like a mathematician with the wrong result, Harris dis dissects his alleged formula, marriage equals sex equals fulfillment. The takeaway, purity culture propagated the lie that marriage would offer fulfillment, and it didn't. Marriage was an idol. And this is one of the primary idols, I think, of the Western church, marriage and family. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with marriage and family. I have a beautiful wife, three beautiful kids. They are not God. And we have made this idea of the family as something that cannot possibly bear up under what it was designed to be. It's a blessing. It's not God. Legalism always leads to a yoke of bondage. That's why Jesus said, come to me. Put my yoke on. My burden is easy. 
Here's the, here's the thing, guys. Young evangelicals are not disillusioned with the gospel. They're disillusioned with a Western evangelicalism that was a false gospel. They're disillusioned with their parents that told them, if you do this, this will be the outcome of your life. They're disillusioned with the idea that, that if they just do the right things, everything will be great in your life. That's not the gospel. It's not. We don't need to deconstruct the gospel. We need the resurgence of the true gospel. You know what that means? It means that, that we are talking about people that are unreached. The de-churched haven't been reached because they're not leaving the gospel. They're leaving the church. That means we can give them the gospel. Most of them don't understand it. They think they're leaving a, a restrictive, judgmental um, uh, paradigm of, of people that look down their nose at them as they sin. They think that's what, that, that, that's what they're leaving. That is what they're leaving. They're not leaving the gospel. They're leaving Western evangelicalism, okay, and what it had become. Now, what is the gospel, and what does it mean to let it deconstruct you, uh, and how is it your only hope? Okay, here's, what, here's where self-deconstruction leaves you. Okay, here's where this is, this is going, this road of self-deconstruction. Here's where it leaves you. It leaves you up the creek in three ways, okay? Number one, it leaves you taken apart and not knowing how to put yourself back together. Anyone ever feel that? You're just, you're just questioning and questioning and questioning and questioning, and all of a sudden you realize, I have nothing left to hold on to. I don't know how to put things back together. All the world has to offer right now is, is what not to believe in. It doesn't actually have uh, anything to hold on to. Uh, it's like taking something apart and then realizing, oops, I don't remember how to put it back together. It was so interesting. I was watching a little clip of some transgender people that were talking about their experience, and, and they said they believed for a really long time that if they could just get rid of the cultural stigma and the judgment of people towards them being transgender, that they would stop feeling shame. And they said, what was really interesting is that they, they achieved that, and the shame never went away. The shame never went away. Our, our culture believes that what's making us feel bad about ourselves What's making us feel bad about ourselves or what we've done or what we're doing, and uh, I'm not trying to single out transgender people, I'm just talking about sin in general. All of the things, all the brokenness, okay? Uh, if we could just remove a judgmental world, then we wouldn't feel guilt anymore. Is that true? No, it's not true. Ask the, ask the, ask the girl who, who had an abortion and, and lives in a culture that says, oh, that's okay, sweetie, but she still feels guilty. And no matter how much the culture says, it's okay, you're forgiven, forgive yourself, love yourself, trust yourself, believe in yourself, she still feels like she's not forgiven. I mean, we need more than just a culture saying, it's okay, you're fine, you're good. We need more than that. Deconstructionism takes you apart and it doesn't give you the power to put yourself back together. It doesn't have the original template of what a human life should look like. Can you imagine opening up someone that has cancer to operate on them and you'd never seen what a body is supposed to look like on the inside? You just start cutting everything. And that's what our culture is doing right now. They're cutting everything. Marriage, family, gender, all of these things. saying you all have to die and they don't know what a real human life is supposed to look like because they're not looking at Christ, the perfect template, right? Deconstruction leaves you exposed with no covering. No, with no covering. This idea that if we could all just be free and express ourselves and be who we truly are, then life would be great. The problem is, is no one really wants the world to know who they truly are. We might say that we really love who we are, but we don't really. Because we know who we really are. We know the thoughts we think. We know the things we would do if we were given the opportunities. 
We look at people with unbridled power, the ability to do whatever they want, and we think, what would I do if I was in that situation? We know the wickedness of our own heart. We know how broken we truly are. Just ask Adam and Eve, why are they hiding from God? Why aren't they just saying, ah, I'm naked. Who cares? I love me. Me is great. They're hiding because they know that they're broken. They're broken. They're, they're hiding from the perfect God, and, and they know that there's something is wrong. Why is Isaiah, when he's beholding the glory of God, flat on his face saying, woe is me, for I am undone? Because he knows as he beholds the glory of God that he is broken. Something is missing. Deconstructionism takes you apart. It lets you behold yourself, but it doesn't really let you be okay with yourself. Just loving yourself is not enough. So where does gospel deconstruction leave you? Let me contrast this. Where does gospel deconstruction leave Here's what the gospel does. It allows you to truly be naked. It allows you to truly say, this is who I am, and I'm not okay with it because this is who I am. I'm okay with it because I'm clothed. I'm covered in Christ's perfect righteousness. It's not being okay and embracing your brokenness. It's saying, I am broken, but God has given me new clothes. It's Adam and Eve in the garden. What did God do? He went out, he got a couple animals, he made a sacrifice, and he clothed them. I don't stand before God and say, God, I just love who I am. I stand before God and say, God, I'm broken, but your son Jesus is now clothing me. He's covering me. It's not enough to just say we love who we are. We need change. We are broken. The gospel undoes us, but it doesn't leave us there. It shows us that we're a sinner. It shows us that we're broken. It shows us that we are so, so just systemically broken, but it doesn't just leave us there. It fixes us because Jesus gave his perfect life in order to impute it and cover us. It allows us to be put back together by the one who designed us. There are hundreds of movies out there about the puppet or the robot or the created thing that goes off on a journey to try to find the one who created it. Why? So that that one who created it can put it back the way that it was meant to be put back together. Why do we like that as humans? Because we know we were created. Because we know there's only one that can put us back together. And we aren't that one. And culture isn't that one. Only God can put you back together the way that you... We are broken. We have to admit that. And we go to the one that made us to fix us. I was thinking about this this morning, so pardon me if this isn't thought through. But Mr. Rogers, okay, did anyone see the movie that came out, Mr. Rogers, Tom Hanks? He's kind of like a big deal right now because he passed away recently and there's been documentaries and movies and, and our culture loves Mr. Rogers. All people, everybody loves Mr. Rogers. And if you're like me, you grew up and watching Mr. Rogers, it gives you the sentimental feeling. And what is the message of Mr. Rogers? Mr. Rogers' message is this, I like you just the way you are. Now, there's two ways of looking at that. You could look at that and be like, yeah, I am perfect just the way I am. <laughs> or you could look at that and say, you know, um, there was a generation of hundreds of thousands of kids that grew up needing to be told that they were liked just the way they are. Where does Mr. Rogers get that? He was a Christian. He understood the gospel. He understood that what we needed more than anything was to be loved just the way that we are. There is an inner longing in us to be loved right where we're at. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't ever want us to change. He loves us right where we are. He loves us right where we're at. And then he loves us to where he wants us to be. He loves us enough to give us more. He loves us enough to grow us. He loves us enough to mature us. He loves us enough to change us. 
The gospel gives you the understanding of why the world is broken and how it must be fixed. Deconstructionism does not give you that. The gospel is the only way for this broken world to be fixed. Uh, If you just look back really quickly to verse 2. Verse 2 of 17. Look at Paul's message. Paul went in, was his custom, on the three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. There is no other way for this broken world to be redeemed. There's no other way. Christ had to come. He had to die. He had to be resurrected. Everything that was needed. We need a new world. We need new desires. We need new hearts. We need new bodies. We need a new Adam. We need a new leader. We need new everything. And when Jesus came and gave his life and was resurrected, he was the firstborn of that new world. And that gospel is the news of this newness that is coming. It is the answer. So let me just recap. When someone says, I am deconstructed, figure out with them, what are you deconstructing? Are you deconstructing the message of the gospel? Or are you deconstructed a false gospel? A false gospel of legalism. A false gospel that told you if you just did the right things, you'd have the right outcomes. Because that gospel doesn't save anybody. In fact, it's really uncomfortable sweater. It's more uncomfortable than the one they were taking off. Okay. What is true deconstructionism? And us as Christians, what is our mandate? What is our call? Our call is to daily, moment by moment, to hold ourselves under the objective truth of God's word and let it examine us. You know, we don't just spend 45 minutes in a perfect world, 45 minutes, real world, 50 minutes, preaching every Sunday because we just, you know, you... It's, it's not just to hear sermons. It's not just to gain knowledge. We literally believe this is ultimate truth. We are people of the book. And I know the world thinks that's crazy. But this is ultimate reality. How do we know it's ultimate reality? How do we know it's ultimate truth? I've, I've told you this before, and I'll, I'll tell you one more time. I'll close with this. I stood in here talking to a guy who's not a Christian, and we were talking about the Lord, and, and he said, I just don't understand how we could ever possibly know what the truth is. He's like, because we're so limited and there's such a big universe and how could we ever know enough truth? And I feel like God just gave me the right thing to say in that moment. I was like, yeah, that's true. Unless the one that created all this came in and talked to you. Okay, how do we know the Bible's true? Because God, the creator of the universe, came into his creation and communicated. He spoke. His name was Jesus. And he validated everything that the Old Testament said. Well, yeah, but maybe that wasn't the historical Jesus. Maybe, he, maybe that was just some made-up thing by Christians. Okay, well, then all roads lead back to the resurrection. If he rose, then he was who he said he was. If he didn't, then he wasn't. So now the job is to figure out if the resurrection was real or not. And, of course, we have amazing evidence to know that it is. Jesus is the word of God come into this world We don't have all the answers. He does. We don't deconstruct ourselves. We let him deconstruct us. And he is a good father. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, just thank you so much that I don't have to just flounder around like so many in this world right now, just wondering what is right and wondering what is wrong and wondering what is true and wondering what is false and wondering how to fix the world and how to get rid of the broken things in me and in the world because I know the answer, the answer, Jesus, is that you are, you have, you will fix it. God, thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. 
Thank you that we have the authority of Scripture, that we can hold ourselves under it, that we can compare ourselves to the reality that you've communicated through your word. And I pray that we would be a church, a people of the book. Lord, that we would let you search us, let you be the surgeon, Lord, cutting away the cancer in us weekly by the grace that was poured out on the cross, Lord Jesus. God, we love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, hey, we got about uh, 13 minutes left. I want to invite a good friend up. Um, Eric, why don't you come back up, and we're, we're going to do a quick conversation. I want to introduce you guys to not just Eric, because he's been up here before, and he's around, but some of the other things that Eric does for the kingdom. As you guys know, we, um, we're, trying to, we're trying to just communicate this idea that as the church... Um, we are the hands of God, that, that we are his avenue of kingdom building. And the way that we do that, I think, is to just hear each other's stories, to be able to have conversations and, and, uh, and, and turn and look at each other and see what God is doing. And, and Eric um, does a few different things. One of the things that he does, we've already heard from him about, which was um, to go into the, the, the juvenile prison here and do work there. But there's another piece to, to what Eric does, and, and, and that is um, doing work in, in Eastern Europe. And, and so I wanted to invite him back up to have him a little bit of a second conversation about kind of what that is and what you do, how we can pray for you, um, what we can learn about what God's doing. I mean, I think one of the things that we just forget is that God is working all across the globe. And believe it or not, America is not the center of the universe. Um, and Grants Pass is not the only place in the world. <laughs> and, uh, and Eric, you have the privilege of getting to travel, you know, um, so like three months out of the year or something like that. I mean, just a massive amount of your year gets to, to go travel and to do work. So we want to hear about kind of what that is and, and uh, what you do there. And, and just, we'd just like to learn about what God's doing there. Uh, okay. Well, um, uh, this started in 2015. I've been doing this for five years now. And uh, I work in all of the former communist countries of Eastern Europe. I've also worked in uh, central Mexico, uh, Kenya, and Uganda. And um, the, the goal I have in, in what I do is to go into individual churches and uh, share the biblical foundation for orphan care, protection, and adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a huge amount of orphans in these countries who are trafficked, okay? and. Uh, it's, I tell people, you know, Satan has owned this territory long enough. It's time for the church to recapture um, the, the picture we see in the scriptures uh, generated from uh, James 127 and um, uh, other Old Testament and New Testament uh, language that tells us that uh, don't wait for the government and don't wait for the EU. Uh, this is your responsibility. These are your orphans. We're responsible for them. <clears throat> God has a method for correcting the condition that they end up in. They were born into this world totally innocent, totally expecting to have parents that would take care of them, and they find themselves in situations, and a lot of orphans were given over to an orphanage at right after birth, and they've never experienced a family at all. Mm. Don't even have a clue what a father or a mother is. So, mm. so I go in to teach uh, using the Old Testament and New Testament foundation, to uh, reestablish the culture of orphan care and adoption back into the church where it belongs. Okay, so um, correct me if I'm wrong. I know in Albania, which we talked about a few weeks ago, um, it's first-generation Christians, right? Because you yeah. got like 1990, there was Iron Curtain, right. uh, gospel wasn't allowed in, and so we're talking like 
the, you know, Christianity hasn't really had a presence right. in Eastern Europe for a long time, right? Yeah. So speak to that a little bit, and what, is that part of the problem and part of the issue there that you're trying to raise awareness? Like, uh, unique to Albania, um, so all of Eastern Europe, going back past World War II, World War I, and, and back, uh, they were ruled by the Ottoman Muslims for almost 500 years. Hmm. So they were a Christian um, community that was suppressed and, uh, and uh, unbelievable, unspeakable atrocities that occurred to these people for almost 500 years. Um, and Albania was the only nation, uh, fast forwarding back up to uh, past World War II and the communist era, which was about 45 years that Eastern Europe experienced communism. Um, Albania was the only nation in the world that expressed this, um, uh, this uh, value that they placed on, them, on themselves and the leadership did that they were truly the only nation in the world that was uh, perfectly atheist. Hmm. And they were on a rampage to uh, wipe out any elements of Christianity there. And, uh, uh, felt that the Soviet Union wasn't even uh, good enough to support their efforts, so they aligned themselves with Maoist China to um, bring about this pure state of atheism there. So it, it really decimated any elements of uh, faith in the country. And yeah, I was, I speak about reestablishing the culture of adoption and orphan care in, in other nations, but in this nation they corrected me and says, no, you're speaking to first generation Christians here. Mm. You are establishing it, you're not wow. reestablishing it. So, so what, what was done for orphan care prior to that, before Christianity being able to come back in? I mean, was it just state-run orphanages kind of thing primarily, like just? Oh yeah, yeah, okay. state-run orphanages usually tucked out of the way of society so that visiting governments and the people themselves would not see any of the elements of what was happening. They would just stuff them in there and, um, you know, it was like a herd of children with a few minders and, and all they knew was, uh, um, you know, kind of a brutal dis discipline within there just to keep order and stuff and never again, never experienced family, more of a, just a Lord of the Flies environment, you know, so. So you, the general public is just used to that not being something they need to think about. Is that kind of, I mean, it's well, just, and so you're trying to get people, the church particularly, right, to look at that and just see yeah, absolutely, that there's yeah. a need there, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, they, they have to go through the discomfort of knowing what's happening to these kids yeah. and having the compassion and the willingness to discomfort themselves to do their part. I don't s say that everyone should adopt. Uh, God uniquely chooses uh, parents to adopt, uh, but the whole church should come alongside those families and cause their adoptions to be yeah. successful. And Interesting. Yeah, it's, cr it's crazy to think about because I think the... Um, <clears throat> Even in our country, you know, we've gotten so used to the government sort of handling things like, oh, there's an abusive parent, you know, okay, well, that's DHS child welfare, um, you know, that the police will handle it, the, we have programs for that, you know, that the church, I think, has almost fallen asleep. And we've kind of got this idea that, well, that's the government's responsibility, but historically, it was the church that adopted kids, and nobody else would. I mean, historically, it was the church that started schools, it was the church that really championed um, the rights of children, you know, mm -hmm. largely, and so, yeah. really, I mean, you're almost kind of back in uh, ancient times here, you know, coming into a, uh, an atheistic society and showing them how the gospel demands that the church, because we've been adopted, right, mm -hmm. um, that we need to be um, those on the front line. I think the same thing is true in our country. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we, we can't just let the government deal with the problems of our 
country, as the church, we need to be thinking about how can we be foster parents, how can we be causes, how can we advocate, you know, um, which more to come on that, by the way, there's um, bringing bring more people up to talk about these things, but, so tell me how you got into that, and kind of just maybe some of your experiences of what you're doing over there. Um, uh, getting into it um, was, uh, I had been working in the youth prison ministry for, uh, since, well, like, 1998, so I had that, and I was asked to join a team from Applegate Christian Fellowship to go to Ukraine in 2005 and, and uh, that they were uh, targeting some youth prisons there and they had outreaches into the community and evangel uh, evangelism in the, in the parks, uh, in the center of the city uh, in the evenings and so on. It was summertime. And I said, yeah, it sounds great. I had my 15-year-old daughter went with me and, and uh, she did really good and uh, she's an artist and she did face painting for the children's festivals and everything. And, but they had canceled the whole youth prison uh, part of the trip. And I'm going like, well, what am I gonna do? And they says, well, you can be in the puppet show. And so I had to <laughs> cram my six foot two body inside a little puppet will you, booth. Will you come do that for us on a no, I, just, <laughs> I would love to see I'll, that. I'll need some practice to rehearse that. <laughs> um, but then uh, after we had done that for, you know, maybe a week, uh, the pastor says, hey, well, now we're gonna take some teams to some orphanages. And I went like, oh, really? And, orphanage and I've never been to an orphanage before and then I've heard of them but you know I don't know anything about them so we go in five orphanages we went to but it was just the first one that just absolutely uh, rocked my boat and it was a toddler age orphanage and <clears throat> these communist era buildings you know they're just cold concrete and stark and uh, unfriendly construction you know and uh, so it's a big 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 building we uh two-story and there's hundreds of kids in there and we walk through the hallway and out into the courtyard area where the kids are and the whole team kind of just kind of slowly fans out into the thing and i i stand there just kind of surveying some kids are playing and not even paying attention to us and other kids are looking and then i spot this one little girl and she's just staring at me just absolutely locked onto me and you know and i'm going like uh, this is a little uncomfortable, you know, like, what, what is going on here? I had no <clears throat> clue what to do, you know, and then um, she eventually, you know, raises her two hands like this, and I got two daughters, I know what that means, you know, so I go like this, you know, and she comes running across the courtyard, jumps up in my arms, uh, I'll try to get through this, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> she puts a headlock around my neck, puts her head underneath my chin, and uh, I got her for almost three hours. I mean, I cannot put her down. She will not let me put her down. At the beginning, she backed her head off like that and just stared right at me, and I'm just going like, okay, God, what is going on here? This is so unusual. And uh, so um, carried her around, <laughs> getting the interpreter to, interpreter to let her know that I need to change arms. This arm's about ready to fall asleep, you know? And so I get her over the other arm and I'm holding her and finally I see the line that where my daughter's doing face painting and it's getting real short. And I said, oh, maybe there's a chance here, you know? So I went down and sat next to my daughter and sure enough, she finished the last one and my daughter goes like this, you know, you wanna come? And <laughs> she looked at me and looked at my daughter and she jumped down out of my lap and, and got her face painted. But uh, that wrecked me, it absolutely wrecked me. Uh, because at, at that point, I didn't understand what I was experiencing at all. And it wasn't until I got back to the States, and, there, and I'm not going to go to the stories of the other four orphanages, but um, got back and found out what the outcome of the orphan 
children are in as they age out of these orphanages, and it's 60% of the girls will end up in prostitution, sex slavery, um, you name it. 70% uh, of the boys will end up in organized crime, drug gangs uh, in Africa and Mexico, um, um, child armies. Uh, it is just a, a carnage for these kids. And uh, when I found that out and, and having experienced these kids face to face, I said, not on my watch. I said, I gotta, I gotta get involved, so yeah. Yeah, thanks man. What I love about uh, what I love about what you're doing is you're not just saying, "Hey, I'm going to go do everything." You're saying, "I'm going to try to mobilize the church, right?" Because yeah. Um, yeah. this is what the church is called into. The church is the answer. Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah, and, and, and in reality, there's um, this is what we're. It's not the only reason we're here, but this is why we're here. I mean, yeah, we're yeah. we're here to bring the kingdom, and part of the way we do that is is undoing these unredeemed places. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of us, you know, we just even hearing that, it's like once you open that, it's like Pandora's box, and you start pushing into the hurt that's there, even just in our own city, you know, it's like, you can't unsee that, mm -hmm. but I think as Christians, we need to plunge, we, we need to plunge in, and we need to feel, we need to feel what you felt, so that we can not unfeel it, because mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just too easy mm -hmm. to go on about life, you yeah. know, and obviously, we yeah. can't fix everything and be out everywhere, but what I love, you know, and what I admire about you, Eric, we're blessed to have you, you know, as part of our church, is that I just see you as going, hey, I can do this, and I can do this, and I'm going to do those things faithfully, and I think if everyone in the church, mm -hmm. uh, not just this church, but everyone in, uh, in the church, Universal, just said, hey, we're going to just let ourselves feel, we're going to plunge mm -hmm. into the, the garbage of this world and, and let it hurt us, mm -hmm. and then we're going to bring redemption mm -hmm. by the gospel, by the Holy Spirit, I mean, we could just really do some amazing work. The only relief you get from the pain is being a part of the correction. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, how can we help? How can we pray? Uh, just, um, you know, the, the, the answer is the church. And so waking the church up and, and, uh, is the answer. You know, government, uh, the, the youth prisons are full of the government's attempts to correct all these things about family because most of the kids in there are, are former uh, foster care kids, you know. So even in our own society, it's, it's, uh, there's really no different at all. Mm -hmm. And the outcome of aged out foster care kids, the statistics are true for them, just like it is in the orphanages yeah. in Eastern Europe. It's, yeah. it's a worldwide phenomenon. Yeah. And the predators, uh, they know exactly where, how to profile them, where they are, and sometimes they work with it, uh, orphanage administrators to extract kids out prior to their exiting in the orphanage. And so it's really, uh, uh, the mafia is working diligently over there. And, Okay. But uh, to pray is just that uh, God will continue open doors, uh, that uh, the church would be receptive to this message, even though it discomforts them, um, and that uh, kids will be taken into the family of God instead of taking into uh, the family of, uh, of Satan and the darkness that he uh, gives on. That's, that's the choice. If the church doesn't do it, the enemy will. Yeah. It's just, uh, just simple. So you when's know. your next trip? Uh, September 1st. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, before you go, we want to have you come up. We want to pray for okay. you, lay hands on you. you got a church here that backs you, okay. and, and that is uh, just, just thankful for the work that you're doing. We want to yeah. um, call in air support for you while Amen. you're over there, man, <laughs> and just be praying. And um, So let's just do that right now. And okay. then I'd invite you guys to come, just mob him, ask him questions. There was a website, too, that you maybe had mentioned. Yeah, that, I uh, um, after working on a, a, a personal level with churches and, and leadership and activists within a church, I also encourage uh, churches in an area where I've spoken to, to band together in, in unity. And it's 
Uh, there is a, a movement that has uh, been established called World Without Orphans, and you can go to world, worldwithoutorphans.org. Um, uh, can, you can see their website. They're working probably in close to 30 nations now uh, all over the world. And uh, they promote this uh, a national Christian alliance that brings all the churches together, so the Baptists, the Pentecostals, the Congregationalists, and and any uh, other uh, evangelical churches. Uh, they haven't gotten much traction with the um, Orthodox churches over there. And, uh, and basically, uh, they come together and put aside their denominational differences just to say, look, we need to come together, pray together, we need to ask God for a change that we could accomplish um, taking these kids and having more control of their destiny and, and taking a little bit of the uh, authority and uh, work away from government and place it within the church. And so they start these groups. Um, we, two years ago, we started uh, Bulgaria Without Orphans and uh, Romania Without Orphans has been rolling for close to eight years now. They're doing very, very well. Cool. Uh, so we also encourage as the next step to join together so all the Christians in the nation are with one mind and uh, asking God to, to deliver these kids. Jesus said, bring the children to me <laughs> and yeah. don't hinder them. Yeah. And so true and undefiled religion is yeah, widows and orphans. Yeah. And, yeah. Which, don't, get, don't get me started. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the people that can't pay us back. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly. where the treasure is. So, all right, let's extend a hand out to Eric and pray for him. God, uh, thank you so much for this man. Thank you for putting a fire in him, um, for the last, the least, the lost, those that, um, Lord, many are just not considering, thinking of what I know that reflects your heart, God, that it's your heart coming through him. It's um, your passion for these these kids that's coming through him. God, I know it's a, a conviction because of the way you've loved him that he can go love them. And we just desire just to, to partner with him, to have fellowship with him in this endeavor, God. We just thank you for all that you have done, all that you are going to do. Um, Lord, all that you are doing, Father, in this work. And we pray for Eastern Europe. We pray for all of these kids, these sweet, dear kids that have just been completely forgotten. We just pray that the Christians, Lord, would come step up because of the gospel conviction and, and Lord, would step into those unredeemed spaces, Lord, and, and just bring um, hope, Lord, into those. Bring light, turn the light on, God, in these dark places, God. So, Lord, make us a church that is aware of these things, active in these things, believing you to do big things, part of a global um, mission, Lord, for the gospel. And and Lord, we just give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks, Eric. Just give it up.